For over 30 years, volunteers at the Chad's Ford Historical Society have been interviewing residents to preserve their memories of Chad's Ford. The Society was incorporated over 50 years ago in order to preserve the John Chad's house, which was close to collapse at that time. The house dates back to around 1725 and is an important example of early Pennsylvania architecture. The last family to live in the house were the Strands. They lived there into the 1950s. Two of the Strand girls were babysitters for Missy Bauman when she was young. There were the uh, kids who babysat for us. They lived in the uh, John Chad, Chad's house. John Chad house. Uh, and I can't think of their name, but if my brother were alive, I could call him and he'd tell me. Uh, there were two girls. There was no running water in that house. There was an outhouse. It was, um, I, th I think there were three or four children, but the girls used to babysit for us. And Were you ever in the John Chad? No, I was at the front door one time to give somebody in that house something my mother had sent over. But I was never in that house, and I wish that I had been. And it was a woman who lived in it that you could remember? I can't remember their name, but, these, but it, was a, it was a black family. A husband and wife? A husband and wife, and at least two girls, because the girls traded back and forth babysitting for us. Okay. And they, I'm sure they rented that. I'm sure, I know they didn't own it. Arthur Cleveland remembers Bill Hoffman, who owned the house at that time. This was a very simple shed that was, that was used, um, and I'm not sure particularly what um, Sellers Hoffman had for it. Bill Hoffman, who was the who was the one who lived uh, to the, well, let's see, what, what direction, what do I expect, up, up north, on, north on Route 100, on the opposite side, and he was the owner, I believe, of the John Chad house at that point, and rented to uh, the, um, oh, geez, I should, so the, to, the, to Stroud, what's the, the, the black man, the last mm -hmm. black man that lived there, yeah, the last we, black family, uh, I don't recall the name, but I know um, Yeah, um, to Strand. The Strand family, yeah, the Strand was, was used to live there. He owned that, and he owned this house, and I, he and my father had gone to college together at Haverford and um, had been in the military together at that point in the First World War. Betty Graham remembered some of the deep connections the Hoffman family had in the area. He, he was local, and he did a lot of genealogy on his family, and there's a big notebook out of Chester County Historical Society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I believe, if I've got it correct, he would be a son of the owner of this property. Mm -hmm. And and his wife was a Hayburn. There was a farm up uh, Route 1, Painter's Crossroads area, right. I believe was a Hayburn family. Right. Three sisters all became teachers. And one was the principal at the Concord School up there. Mm -hmm. so. huh. But she married Mr. Hoffman that owned this property. Huh. Because we used to say this is on the footprint of the Hoffman barn, and when I met her for an oral history, she said, "Oh, I used to live on Route 100," and I said, "Oh, do you, are you familiar with the Chad Chad's Ford Historical Society?" And she said, "Oh, yeah, we sold them the Chad house," and I had no idea at the angle I was going in, so it was kind of neat. And then there's a big connection uh, with another property, his brother, William's brother owned a house in Haverford Township, the Granger State. So now I'm 
Dumble Hoffman connection. And out at the Historical Society, there's a huge notebook that Ralph put together with even some original letters in it. There's way more than I can absorb. By the mid-1960s, a group of local people were growing concerned that the vacant structure might collapse. Virginia Disney remembers that Virginia Morgan, whose nickname was Pete, was a major force in the quest to save the house. Well, there were just 30 women and had decided okay. because Pete said we had to do it. I, I'm not sure. That I, I looked at that wreck. I mean, the pictures would be mm -hmm. in there. And you look at that wreck of the house. <laughs> I've got, got lots of pictures of that. I'm sure so did Karen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'd look at that and think, why are we working to save it? It's ready to fall down. <laughs> Nobody wants it. You have to, when we would show people, even when the workmen were in there, we people would drive along the road and they were amazed. This is the chat house that I'm hearing about, and they'd want to see it. And Pete would take them in to see it and have to jump over holes in the floor, you know, that went down to the basement. They could have all fallen through and killed themselves. I mean, but she was so enthusiastic about it. Don and Linda Tulloch recall those early days in the race to save the house. I think they were very proud of the wires too, you know? And maybe even, this is supposition, but you know, Ansi dying so young, they, they slowly began to think about the significance of the family and the art going through the family. And it was right here in Chance Ford that it took place. So then they wanted to save the village as they knew it, although... So the Wyas were a big part of that money community. raising they and community this spirit community. and raising the funds to keep the Chad's house and things like that. Well, I didn't know if they were... They were always... Andy was always supportive, wasn't he? He, he was always supportive, and I remember when Andrew Wyeth, uh you know, he, he was known before 1947. But I think it was in the summer of 1947, Life magazine decided to come to Chad's Ford and take pictures of him at his studio and all of that. And when the word got around that Life magazine was coming to Chad's Ford, things started <laughs> to happen. <laughs> the first step was to actually acquire the property. And Virginia Disney recalled that the Chad's Ford Days event in 1968 was the source of the funds for that. And the 30 women were sitting around her living room, some of them on the floor, some on the arm of a chair. And it, it was quite a meeting. And that day we left there dedicated that we had to save the Chad House. <laughs> and we bought it for $25,000. That's all in my mm -hmm. documented. And from there on, we, the, way, the money maker was, and we were very friendly with Frolic, who was, Frolic Weymouth, who was, and Pete was very friendly with him, who, who was then negotiating, almost finished with all the plans for the museum. Mm -hmm. And he and Pete just were like that, uh, Shiva, the historical society. They, we sat every summer night that, that year that, on, a, on the steps of the old Hoffman lumber yard mm -hmm. and talked and dreamed and planned museum and the historical society, mm. the Chad House. Andy Johnson recalls how important Chad's four days were to getting the ball rolling. I think the other thing is that the success of Chad's four days always impressed me. Income was a big help, I think, and I think the amount of volunteer effort that goes into this is mind-boggling in a way. 
I think of the early workers, the Kay Kings, uh, Pete Morgans, uh, Betsy Yasimos, Jimmy Johnson. I mean, they worked their tails off to get some of those early things started, and, and they were always kind of the bread and butter. I mean, even the first year the museum was acquired, the building was acquired, they had a bake sale, what I call a bake sale. <laughs> and I think they thought they could run the museum on a bake sale. But I think, I think we need to be pretty reverent about that spirit and, uh, and what, it, what it meant to this organization. I certainly feel that way. Andy was the original director of the Brandywine River Museum. Frolic Weymouth was a driving force behind the museum and so much else in the community. Andy remembered the scene at the auction of Hoffman's Mill, which would later house the Brandywine River Museum. Frolic said, when I take my hat off, you know, he notoriously wore a hat because he was bald. When I take my hat off, stop bidding because we, we can't afford it after that. Finally, never looked back. Frolic from Bigger. <laughs> so, so that's how the third one got to <laughs> But they were all on some sort of note, and there was no mortgage, no mechanics lien. There were 54 mechanics liens on the property when I tried to get a mortgage. Frolic was a friend of Pete Morgan's and was very helpful in the effort to get the Chad's house restored. David Murtaugh, the first president of the Historical Society, remembered meeting in Frolic's office to hatch a plan to pay for the restoration. And so we had our first board meetings in Frolic Weymouth's office over at the uh, museum. But in order to get to that, we had to build the museum. And that took up like 1969 to 1970, somewhere in there is when they opened. And in order to get funding for the house, John Chad house, um, Pete Morgan got Frolic to agree to let us have an exhibition of the Wyeth art at the museum before it was even done. So we had to build temporary railings and temporary access, and they conceived of this show, art show, of Wyeth art. Little did they know that thousands of people would come. Mm -hmm. and there were humongous lines and, and a lot of um, problems handling people, but it was so successful. And so that started things off really with getting money to start the John Chad House restoration. An undertaking like that would take the effort of the entire community. And Virginia Disney remembered how Pete got everyone organized. We sat in a circle, a big circle, by then, like 200 people. And she sat there with just no notes or anything, but she'd say, you do decorating, you do book prints, you do this, you do that. And there were like 50 jobs. And, and she had set this all up in her mind or before she came to the meeting. And if you got a finger pointed at you, you were going to do that, you were going to do it. And then she pointed at me because I'd been a librarian back in the years before that. And she had pointed to me to do books, prints, and maps. I had no more idea what she meant to do than to find the moon. <laughs> but she got to see that I had found out how to do it. She, she sick me on poor Betsy Wyeth, who knew well all these things. And Betsy named, oh, I don't know how many 
paintings we had of Andy, as it were, came from California. People that had bought these paintings, Bessie wrote to him and said, we're having a show and we want to see that painting. And the next couple of days before the thing went off, trucks drove in with all these paintings. And we had million dollar, eight, just one million dollar insurance on what was millions and millions of dollars worth of stock. Hoffman's Mill, which was to become the Brandywine River Museum, was still a bit of a wreck at that time. So there was a frantic effort to get it in shape to host the event. Empty and very broken down, and Dave Murtaugh came in with his crew of people, his own people, and spent days and days repairing rafters that were swinging. <laughs> and we were bringing these thousands of people into building that things were swaying, and because it was this old, old barn, I mean, uh, uh, Hoffman the Mill and the lumber yard, which was not active anymore. It had been empty and out of business for years. And, and the paintings were displayed in the in mill. There, in they there. Built, they built petitions for all these different paintings. You'd have a painting in each little cubbyhole. Mm -hmm. And you had about, oh, 10 or 15, maybe more people, you know, just standing there, right? They didn't leave these paintings. You wouldn't let anybody get near them. The risk. So Andrew Wise was quite well known. By, by that time, he mm -hmm. was famous, mm -hmm. and and people were paying sixty thousand dollars for paintings. And then because Betsy wrote and said, um, "We want to borrow it. We're having a show." They just, they just came. The show exceeded all expectations, with thousands and thousands of people clamoring to attend. Didn't realize that they were taking on a charge for it spectacular that would finally be seen by approximately 25,000 people. State troopers said they had never, ever in Pennsylvania's history seen anything like it. They lined up the media and they had to Kennett <laughs> on the highway. It was supposed to last for a weekend, but there were so many people interested in it that it was extended for nine days. It lasted nine days. We only started it for two days a weekend. And there were all these thousands of people <laughs> were coming, and, and that we still had stock to sell. So you just kept on opening every, every day? And so Pete would go around the end of the day and say, can you come tomorrow morning? Can you open tomorrow Sure, we, we're into it. I, I don't think I had a meal in nine days, a, a real meal. Now and then somebody would bring me a sandwich or something, but I, we'd be down there. Seven o'clock in the morning to set up, and, and we would be there until dark at night, we couldn't make the people leave. Having raised some money, the newly incorporated society was ready to start working on the restoration. David Murtaugh was there at the first meeting of the building committee. And so that's how I got asked by Virginia Morgan to one night come to her house because she was in the throes of starting working on the, getting the John Chad house restored mm -hmm. with John Milner. So she asked me to come to her house for a meeting, would I be on the building committee? And that kind of started things, because <laughs> I went to her house and there was Frolic Weymouth, he was on the building committee. So that was the three of us for the first meeting at the building committee. Andy Johnson was amazed at the can-do spirit of the group. One of the messages out of this would be the real uh, entrepreneurial spirit of the founders of this organization. Their ability to take risk and to do things that were pretty unusual, I think. And when uh, you say this organization, are you talking about uh, the historical this, this, society? Historical society, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you think that 
you would normally want a business plan that says we buy this and we fix this up and we're going to do this and that and the other thing, you know. But just to say, we got to do this, gang. <laughs> we're just going to buy all this stuff and hope it works. <laughs> Hire John Milner and <laughs> go do things. <laughs> yeah. John Milner's work on historical restorations is now widely recognized throughout the region. But at that time, he was just getting started. Well, when I started my practice in 1968, uh, my wife and I lived in Media. The office was in my house, in our house. And one of the first projects that I was, uh, I was approached about was the Chad House restoration. The rest is history. And after, shortly after that, we moved to Chad's board. And where you had an office on Route 1, was that your first office in Chad's board? Yes. One of them. It was down by Pete Sinatra Station, now leaders John started the process by recruiting a master carpenter for the work. This wonderful gentleman, Norman Cole, right. is part of the history of the John Chad House. When I had been contacted by Pete Morgan and asked if we wanted to participate in the restoration of the house, and so I said, oh, that'd be great, uh, we need a craftsman because there's a lot of carpentry work and just work that requires a craftsman, a very sensitive craftsman. So I had a neighbor whose name was Toppy Nason, who was a contractor in Philadelphia. Nason and Cullen was the name of his company. Very successful, large commercial. And I explained to him about the Chad house, and he, he knows Chad, knew Chad's board and loved it. And uh, he said, well, you know what? I have a carpenter who works for me. He's a Finnish carpenter, and he's working in Lankanoe Hospital right now, and he hates it. <laughs> because he, he wants to do, his father was a cabinet maker mm -hmm. and he wants to do cabinetry. So he said, I will ma I'll make a deal with you. I will, you can have him as long as you pay his union dues because I, I don't want to have to pay his union dues. He was a union carpenter. So he introduced me to Norman Culp and um, I, I showed Norman the house and what we were trying to accomplish. And he was very interested, and so he worked on it for several years. John took on many roles during the project, architect, advisor, and even general contractor. I should explain a little bit about that. Usually on a, on a project, we have, we're retained, we have a contract, we do a set of drawings, construction drawings, and we find a contractor to, to execute them. And, and it, it, it's a, a project that goes in, in stages. With the Chad House, we sort of eased into it. You know, we had an issue with the roof, we had to do something about that, and, and then we had to do something with the cornice because it involved the roof, and, then, and there were masonry issues. So we did not do a set of architectural drawings uh, for that project the way we do for others. Uh, one being the Barnes Brenton House, we did do drawings for phases of that restoration project. So I, I wouldn't say I was the contractor. I would say that, um, that I just advised the work that was going on and talk, worked with Norman Culp and uh, members of the society, if I recall mm -hmm. correctly. And it was one of those things we just needed to be done and we did it. And we didn't go through the normal procedure that we do with other projects because it was sort of a staged thing. John Milner quickly developed a real appreciation for the structure. I absolutely love the house, and one of the things I love about it is it hadn't been changed very much at all. And so you, one of the things that 
that I enjoy about restoration work is I like to get into the mind of the craftsman who is involved with the house. And I do that by looking at his or her work and the wood sand, the plane marks, the saw marks, and, and any evidence of where a craftsman touched the material. Uh, I feel very good about that. It connects me with the people who, who did the work. And the house just well, was just like that. I mean, you could see everything. You could see the craftsman's involvement everywhere. And, and the flooring was all original, the woodwork was original, a lot of the plaster was original. The wood cornice had been changed and the pent roof had been taken off. Mm -hmm. um, but we've, we had, uh, there were photographs in the Historical Society, excuse me, in Westchester, that showed, had early photographs taken around 1900, right before 1900 and right after 1900. So they showed the pent roof and they showed some of the features that I was pretty sure were there, but it, it were, had been removed. So we, we started looking at those photographs, and then we started looking at the walls of the building and finding evidence that related to the photographs. And, and one thing led to another, and we were able to we were able to bring the house back to the way it was when Chad was there, with very little conjecture. Um, lots of restorations are done with a lot of conjecture. There wasn't much conjecture there. It was pretty pretty clear. Most of the original materials were still there, the framing, the roof rafters, the whole thing. The window frames, many of the window frames. So we didn't have to go through a lot of guesswork. But we basically preserved the house or conserved it, which was which was really fun. And Norman was so was so enamored with this house and felt so personally about it that we formed a very close working relationship. And, and I, he would say, you gotta come here, I just found something. And then he'd show it to me. And, and we talked like that all, all, all the time. So it was, a, it was a very rewarding project. And one day he said, uh, we got a problem. The west wall is, is structurally unsound. When they dug out the, the south side and the west side to put the porch on and make the entrance into the, uh, expand the entrance in, into the basement, they undermined the foundation. So there was no foundation there. And over the years, as it rained and the ground got soaked there, it just kept subsiding. And he said, we got to do something about this. And so he said, there's a, there's a bad crack up there that i got to take care of. So we looked at it and we decided how he was going to do it. And, and he fixed the crack and then we, then we did some underpinning of the foundation. And he made some, the, the building had leaned like this which is why when you go in the front door you sort of head downhill. Um, so, so it was a process of discovering these issues and then figuring out how to deal with them. And, and Norman was a major, played a major role in that. Milner hired another Norman to help with the work. Norman Glass had just graduated from a carpentry program and joined Norman Culp as an assistant. Well, John hired me. I started in June, um, but the first, and he introduced me, took me up to the Chad House, which he was doing at the time. John, at the time, it was a small firm, and John did a little bit of both. He did con contracting and architecture, and so he was actually not only did the drawings for the Chad House, but was doing the construction on it, or the reconstruction or the restoration. And his master carpenter was Norm Culp, an old Dutchman who couldn't say his V's. It took Culp a little time to warm up to the new guy. And he was a character. I learned a lot from old Norm. 
Um, so he introduced me to Norm and stuck me in the chat house and said, here's your, where you're going to work. Culp, he was from Quaker Town. His father was a Lutheran pastor, minister. <laughs> but So the first week, Norm didn't talk to me, and I didn't know what to do. He didn't tell me to do anything, and he was ornery old Dutchman. <laughs> and so I went to John, and I said, John, what do I do? I said, I, you know, you're paying me, and I feel bad, because I was only getting three fifty an hour, but that's all right. <laughs> it was a lot of money back then. Um, John said, just bide with him. He said, eventually he'll open up to you. So the beginning of the second week, I remember we used to pull up, there used to be like a driveway where the stairs are now, and you'd go up and come back down again, we'd pull up there and park. So we, we each got out of our cars that morning, and Norm finally came over, this was Monday morning, he said, do you have a level? Oh, oh. So I raced back to my car, and I got my new level out, and I only said the square. So I got my big framing square and handed it to him, and he looked them all over, and he tossed them back to me, and the first thing he ever said, he says, no, the sons of bitches out. If you're going to do restoration, you don't need a level and a square because nothing's level and nothing's square. <laughs> so after that, we, um, we <laughs> That's cute. But he had done a lot of work previously on the house. I, I think it was being done in phases because of money, you know, raising money. Because uh, this was the beginning of like the, the final phase. But other work, like the outside had been restored, but the inside wasn't at all at the time. Because I heard the stories about when they were had the mason there pointing and the scaffold up, and they found the initials of the stonemason named Wyeth, and how Betsy had come down and climbed the scaffolding to, to look at the initials of her ancestor, um, or Andy's ancestor. But um, I heard all those stories from Norm. Norm Culp, and it's funny because I've gotten this way now, this, he was 69, 70, 71 when I worked with him, and I'm now 66. But we, he would take dimensions and we'd go have lunch and come back 45 minutes later and he would cut the piece. I'd say, don't you want to mention that again? He said, I remember. Measure twice? Yeah. Cut once? Yeah. Okay. Um, matter of fact, normally, because <laughs> he was getting older, he wouldn't, we wouldn't eat together. He'd sit in his car and I'd sit in my car and eat lunch and he would fall asleep. So one day I thought, I'm going to leave him sleep. It's about 2 o'clock, he comes staggering in the house, cursing me out in his Pennsylvania German accent. Why didn't you wake me up? I said, well, you look really comfortable out there, Norm. <laughs> he was ticked at me. It's like the day he, um, he couldn't say his V's, and I had a van. Um, at first, I didn't have a van, but then I bought an old used van, 60, a 69 Chevy or Ford van. And I was dating a girl named Vicky. Um, <laughs> uh, so one day, it was a Friday, and he gets all giddy like a Dutchman does, and he says to me, you take a wiki out the way tonight? I said, no, I'm not taking wiki out the way tonight. He wouldn't talk to me the rest of the day. <laughs> Norman Culp was what you might call old-fashioned in his approach. So I kind of felt that he wanted to teach me in his own way. And it wasn't just me, he was one of these old-fashioned guys. If we were working over there and this group came into the house, he would set his tools down. And he may not talk to you, but he would work in front of you. He didn't want anybody to see him working that wasn't involved with him. Um, like an old-fashioned, like John used to say, the old-time stair builders were that way. If somebody came in, he, they wouldn't let you watch them, they would just set their tools down. Norm was funny too, we'd have a question or problem with something. And I remember being over there one day, and, we had, and Norm would never go to John's office, which is right down there. He'd send me down there. So I'd trot down the street. And so he had a question. So I trotted down and told John. He said, well, I'll be up in about an hour. 
So he comes up and we ask him with some detail. So John's all tickled, every architect, he sketches this out and makes a little drawing and says, this is the way you have to do it and shows us how to do it and everything. So he leaves. As soon as he leaves, Norm crinkles it up, throws it over his shoulders. <laughs> What'd you do that for? He said, "If we did it the way John wants us to do it, it'd take us all day." He said, "I'll do it the way I know how to do it, and it'll look just like that, and John will be happy as all get out." So the next day, John came over and looked at it. He said, oh, "That's beautiful, Norm. Did you do what I said?" "Oh yeah, we did it just the way you said, John." <laughs> and even after they had worked together for a long time. Culp didn't always want to reveal his secrets. I was just the apprentice at the time. He, I mean, he was doing the box winding steps, the stairway. I had never done box winders before, so I said, would you teach me how to do this? And he said, no. He's, and then he started razzing me. This was Norm's typical sense of humor, too. Well, didn't they teach you that at Williamson, he said. And I said, no, but I said, you've got to teach me. I never did that. Well, he said, I'm not teaching you. I said, well, I'm going to sit here, because John had told me to observe. So I said, well, I'm going to sit here and watch you then. He said, well, I'm telling John. So after work, we both trot down to the, to the office, and I got there first and told John, and John said, you know, that's what I want you to do, Norm. So then Norm comes in, and he said, well, I want Norm to learn from you. He said, well, man, old Norm was really mad because John didn't, you know, fire me or holler at me. <laughs> but he was a neat guy. I liked old Norm. Norman Glass learned a bit about the problems with the foundation. Some of the phases, including jacking up, we tore out the box winders because they were shot. They were the collapsing. The winders from the basement kitchen up, those winders, winders box winders are called. Um, and when they stairway. were out, it's stairway, yeah. yeah. We, um, we had to jack up that corner. I remember jacking that corner up. And this is why I learned from Norm. I learned a lot from old Norm Cult because um, he had worked on the restoration of the Massey house too with John Milner. Um, and he was a master carpenter. We didn't, and I think that might still be the sag, the Florida isn't perfectly level. No, it isn't. Because he was then talking about memory, beams getting memories. When they sag long enough, they have a memory like that, and they've conformed that figure, figuration. So if you jack them too far, they'll explode on you, basically. So we jacked that corner up as far as we could and kind of left it alone and stabilized it. What is told is that the porch was put on by people, mm. a door was put in downstairs where a window originally okay. was, and all that digging and removing of the land and the vibration mm. of the roof. Yeah. So I'm just curious to know what in fact was the cause of the I'm house sure settling. That makes sense. Um, being on a hill and there's all these structure cracks, and, what it, and I had John Bowie come out to look and confirm what I believed. That addition is sliding down the hill. Uh, because the footers back then weren't like footers today. They would dig down a couple feet and start the stone right down in the ground. So it wouldn't surprise me the least bit at that point, and, uh, and I'm sure they stabilized it, that that house wasn't sliding down the hill. Plus you have the traffic vibrations, which never existed in the 18th century trucks and a lot of heavy cars. I know the Barnes-Britton house had all kinds of structural problems because uh, John had me up there doing some stabilization work. There is a very large cooking fireplace in the house, and there were severe structural problems there as well. Um, we, then we had the two lintels that were back to back in the cooking fireplace, and they were cracked because somebody put a stove pipe through at one time and it weakened them. So it was just enough space between the two lintels, wood lintels, to slip a piece of steel in there. So, it was challenging because the beams had sagged, the lintels had sagged. So the steel had to sag mm -hmm. when it went in because if it didn't, 
you know, it wouldn't work. So we had a, I can't, I think it might have been the iron shop in, um, in Broomall that cut that lintel measure. We all measured it, cut it, and so, and then cut a hole in the outside wall and slid it in. And it slid right between the two oak lintels with a sack. So, so. Where'd you cut the hole in the wall to get that in? In the, on the north side, right, right outside of the, the lintel. Okay. And then filled it up. Oh yeah. I assume Which that's why you don't know yeah, where it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and Norman patched it very well, and I don't think you can even see it. No, anymore. I never noticed there was a hole. But that was the only way to get it in there. Right. I did wonder how that got. Because you couldn't okay. slide it up. Because if you did, there's nothing yeah. for it to sit on. So right. you had to bring it in from the side. The two Normans worked on the walls throughout the house. When we started, the inside was totally unrestored. The, the, um, the stairs were collapsing. The, 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 above the downstairs kitchen, that room up there was sagged way down mm -hmm. towards the back corner. Um, it was in pretty bad shape. Um, and we worked quite a long time, Norm and I, on that project. Norm was the one that did the patching in that the front parlor. You come in into the room to the right with the corner fireplace with the panel. You can see the patches and all the patches and the other paneling in the, the entry room. But he did all those, and I was just amazed at how, back then, you know, how good he was at doing those patches. You can still kind of see where they, the new wood is. But they had cut out in the corner fireplace its arches, and they had taken that all out and made a big opening, and he put the center part and the arches back. And I believe, if I remember rightly, um, the big fireplace in the, um, the hall room that you come into, the entry room, um, I think there was a stovepipe cut in the paddling that he patched. They also relayed the stone floor on the lower level. But Norman and I did that floor and he did the laying because I was a young apprentice guy. I had to do all the mixing of the cement and hauling of the stones. But one of the neat <laughs> things I was telling you about was that I'd have to go up there and look and see if I could find it. Norman was so proud of himself that he was able to do this joint that forms this S in the stone. Um, he was just so tickled and proud of himself for being able to do that. <laughs> I'll never forget that. He wanted me to look at it and look at this, look what I did. So it's, the floor has an S Somewhere pattern. it's like a, a, an S. It's, it's, I, I don't know if he did it intentionally, he just called it and down. He's telling me he did it intentionally, but it's like this S and I forget where in the floor it is. It's pretty big where the joints are kind of straight and form this S. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then I remember the bake oven, they didn't have the money because that was done a lot later and we had a window in the bake oven opening. We put a window in there. There was a fair amount of archaeology done around the house during this process. Becky King Rogers remembers getting involved as a youngster. They bought John Chad House mm -hmm. and they, the ladies were working in the spring house and oh. my mom would say we, we've got to go over to the spring house because I promised I would work for you know whatever many hours and I get over there and I don't know the spring house is not exactly the funnest place to be when you're little <laughs> so Pete Morgan would say well why don't you go downstairs and play in the spring house where the water is and so I would go down and I'd take my shoes off and I'd play in that with the sand and then I'd find pieces of china and nails, and I'd go running back up and I'd say, look! And she'd say, put them over on the windowsill. She goes, those are going to be the beginning of our exhibits. And I thought, as a child, I was like, oh my gosh, I 
am Indiana Jones, you know? That's, I mean, I didn't, we didn't have Indiana Jones then, but that's how I felt. Like, I was going to be an archaeologist, you know? But um, it was so, so much... Um, I mean, those are memories that not very many people have to be able, to, in the 20th century, to find things from the 1700s. Norman Glass talks about why there is always so much to find around an old structure. I'd always heard this wives' tale rumor that you could tell if a housewife was left or right-handed because you'd find the trash pit out the back door, either be on the right side or the left side. So Norman and I were talking about that the day the backhoe guy was there. There's a telephone pole somewhere down by Route 100, and he was digging a trench to put the service underground, and it was to go, if I remember, to the left of the back door. And um, so I stood there at the door. The stairs weren't there at the time, and I stood there watching as he got closer. And sure enough, as soon as he got near the house, he started bringing up all kinds of shards and relics and redware. So I go like this, and the backhoe guy jumps off, and of course all three of us go down the pit. And we're, there was no archaeology done because, you know, they had to get this done, but there was all kinds of artifacts right there. Um, and another example, which was kind of neat, John had designed a perimeter drain to put around, since it's a bank building and it's finished downstairs, a perimeter drain to put around that part of the building. So Norm has me go outside one day with a pick and shovel and says, start digging around the building so we can do this drain. Well, I didn't get down a foot and I find this early, probably done by Chad, a uh, perimeter drain out of crushed oyster shells. Basically, they took the builder's trench, and I guess when they got to a certain height with it, they just filled it with crushed oyster shells so it would percolate water around the building. So that was kind of neat. Um, but they, the back door was really fun. The, the, the backhoe guy jumped off the backhoe, ran over the front, and dropped, dropped out of the hole, because here's all these artifacts. You mentioned trash pit. Yes. Uh, is, is, was, that an, as, is, was that a common feature uh, at, at houses that they would dig a pit and then... I'm, I'm not sure if it was a pit. They weren't very... I've come to the conclusion over the years that if you took all the artifacts around a house in the ground, out of the ground, that the soil level would lower by probably about three or four inches because there's always so much stuff because they just kind of threw their stuff. They had mid piles or you know, trash piles, really. Best example of that, I was up at um, Plymouth Plantation years ago, and, and their interpretation there, which I thought was so cool, my friend said she thought I was sick for thinking that was really cool and exciting. In the backyards, they have trash pits with broken redware and garbage and, not pits, I'm sorry, little piles where they're throwing their, their stuff, their household trash. Um, and there was flies buzzing around, and I thought that was so cool. Um, and, I mean, so I'm sure that women over the years have just thrown, I'm not sure why, I mean, I, people haven't changed much that far as I'm, but for some reason they just find trash around old houses, it's all over the place. I remember right after the house opened, maybe 10 years after it opened, I was here visiting with a friend, and I'm standing outside talking to whoever the tour guide was, I looked down, there was a porcelain doll head lying in the dirt, half out of the dirt, I picked it up and handed it to her. <laughs> It was this neat little porcelain doll head. Um, so there's always, I mean, I'm sure there's still tons of stuff in the dirt around. Every time you dig, you probably come up with something. It gets to a point, the house where I live now, and when I lived at Ridley Creek State Park, it gets to the point that every time you dig, there's so much stuff you just throw it back in the ground if it's <laughs> your house, because you've saved boxes of stuff already, which are valueless, <laughs> other than to the house and to you. So you just start reburying this stuff. <laughs> 
John Milner recalled the find that caused the biggest stir. He was he was building rebuilding the cornice on the south facade one day, and I stopped by to see him, and he said, "You got to come up here and look at this." I, I I climbed up on the scaffold, and he said, "There's some initials here between the windows on the second floor, J. W. Jr." So I don't know how I I learned this, but someone said that. I can't remember exactly what it was. He, um, he, he stopped using the junior after his father passed away. I, I, I'm really, I, that needs to be clarified. Yeah, that's not, yeah. So, and so that, that's all I know. That, that it, he, he was a mason, I, I, I was told. And um, that he signed his name there, or signed his, his initials. But who determined that he signed his name there? It wasn't you, correct? No, the, 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 Miss, the, the initials were, were there. But who determined that it was John Wyatt Jr.'s initials? No, no. Uh, they just, someone, whoever it was, identified the, the initials as John Wyatt Jr. Somebody from so, what, the, the, the Historical Society, okay. yeah. yeah. Oh, they came up with that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't do any research on it. Right, right, right. Okay. It wasn't Norm. Uh, no, Culp, Mr. Culp, it wasn't him, it wasn't... He found the initials. They were right, very, right. very obscure. Right, I know, yeah. And somebody said, well, my heavens, that, that, that matches John Wyeth Jr., who was a stonemason. This find got Betsy Wyeth to climb the scaffolding to see. All I knew was the story about Betsy and you know, finding the initials of the original mason. And, and all the scaffolding. Did she come over and look at the yeah, wall? She climbed up the scaffolding. It was a big news down here that oh, Betsy climbed the scaffolding of the <laughs> chat house to see those initials. <laughs> sure, but what about ghosts? And knowing the history of the battle, not forget who was in charge of the historic society at the time, but I'd ask her if I could sleep up there a couple nights so I could see if there were any ghosts in the house <laughs> from the battle, thinking, figuring that all these people that were killed around here didn't see any, but I got to sleep in there. <laughs> would you sleep on the floor? A sleeping bag, yeah, yeah. on the floor, yeah. Like, we'd sit there and just look around and <laughs> no ghosts. <laughs> Finally, John Milner puts the historic context of the house in perspective. Would the Chad's house have been considered a luxurious house when it was built? Or a special, distinctive, expensive? Um, I think by virtue of its position on the hillside, and the, the high location of it and that early date it was not a, a cabin it was not it was not the Barnes Brinton house but it was it was a substantial house small but substantial and that's a very early date so wasn't the spring house an average size of a home back then considering your size difference so maybe of a very early one mm -hmm. yeah that would be a cabin well, we hope you've enjoyed the story of saving the 300-year-old John Chad's house. Stop by for a tour when you're in the area.